This is EconoPolitics, the official podcast of the Economics and Politics section of LASA, the Latin American Studies Association. EconoPolitics aims to foster greater dialogue between academics and practitioners throughout the region and to discuss major regional issues. I'm Joseph Marks, host of EconoPolitics. Welcome to today's show. Welcome to another episode of EconoPolitics. This week, we continue to look at Venezuela, and today's guest is someone who knows the country and the region very well. William Neumann served as the New York Times correspondent and Andes region bureau chief from 2012 to 2016, based in Caracas. He is the author of a brand new book, Things Are Never So Bad That They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela by St. Martin's Press. I am two thirds through the book, but can already recommend it to all as a very good read, full of personal stories with a wonderful cast of characters, a well-written and realistic portrayal of recent history of Venezuela. Welcome, William. We're delighted to have you on the show. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. So perhaps we should begin by asking you to summarize what has happened in Venezuela over the last 20 years. Can you can you summarize uh, the book uh, and the reasons that led you to write the book, but uh, the importance of what has been happening in Venezuela? Sure. Um, well, the, the idea of the book uh, was to do a portrait of a country in crisis. Uh, the economic collapse in Venezuela, as you know, um, is of sort of mind boggling and historic proportions. They've lost 80% of economic production over eight years. Uh, I like to use the comparison of the Great Depression in the United States, which is a reference point for a lot of people. And in the Great Depression, the U.S. lost 27 percent of its economic production, and it started to grow again within four years. And so it's just astonishing to see a country just absolutely brought to its knees, not by war, but by essentially uh, a series of bad policy decisions. Um, and uh, so what I wanted to do was do a portrait of a country. Um, uh, and the focus of the book is on the last several years. Uh, I didn't want to write another book about Chavez. There's a lot of books about Chavez. This is a book about what happened after Chavez. When I first saw the, um, the, the cover that they had designed, I was very happy, both because it's very colorful and it shows the sort of centrality of oil, but there's no picture of Chavez on the cover. And it's very rare for a book about Venezuela to come out without a picture of Chavez on the cover. And, and that wasn't anything that I had asked them to do. It's just how it, you know, the what the designer came up with. And I thought it was perfect. Um, and uh, so it's about the last, uh, it's about this post-Chavez period, almost the last 10 years. But obviously to understand the present, you have to understand the past. So I talk a lot about the history of the country. There is a lot about Chavez and what he represented uh, and what he did in Venezuela. Uh, but the real focus of it is on the, the, the more recent past. And the other focus is on real people. Um, when I started uh, working on the book, uh, I wasn't really sure about how, um, you know, what exact, what story exactly I was going to tell or how I was going to tell it. And I said, I was traveling around. The book is based, I was in, I lived in Caracas from 2012 to 2016. And then I returned frequently after that, either just to visit friends or to continue reporting for the Times. 
And, um, and then in 2019, I spent about three months there working on the book. Um, and what I discovered is, is I was going from one end of the country to the, to the other and just talking to lots of people and really long conversations and repeated conversations and interviews. And what I discovered is people tell you the stories of their lives, they're also telling you the story of their country. And I discovered that as people tell you their own personal stories, you see how their lives sort of track the ups and downs of the country in recent years. And so a big part of the book is telling or letting people tell their own stories and you learn about the country that way. I mean, one of the women uh, that I profile in the book is a woman, Hilda, who lives in the slum of Petare in Caracas, which a lot of people call the biggest slum in Latin America. And she lives in a one-room tin shack with her husband and their seven kids. And when I met her, um, her youngest son, Gregorio, was four years old. His teeth were falling out. They were turning black and falling out because of a lack of calcium. Uh, there was almost never any food in the house. They would eat maybe once a day, on good days, twice a day, almost no vegetables, mostly just you know pasta or, or lentils. And she would keep the kids home from school on some days because they hadn't eaten. And so she thought, well, what is the point of you know, sending the kids to school when they can't even pay attention because they're so hungry? And yet this was a woman who had been a Chavista. She had lived through Chavez. She had lived quite well, um, considered herself in this sort of you know, up and coming middle class of Venezuela during the Chavez years, and then was reduced to this state during the, the crisis. Um, and, you know, so people like her, there's a lot of, of those sorts of profiles that really tell the, the story of the country in, in very concrete terms. Fantastic. Um, I'm always struck by the dramatic economic indicators, and you just portrayed um, a couple of stories, um, to see how the country gets by economically. And uh, I wonder if you could contrast uh, some of the interviews, some of the meetings you had between the, let's say, the, the working poor and, um, and members of the elites and um, your snapshot of uh, um, how the country is doing economically right now. It, I mean, that's always something that, that was a constant challenge for me was to understand how people uh, got by. Because I would talk to so many people, especially in the middle of this crisis, um, uh, which is still going on. And I, it's just astonishing. I mean, people, the things that people needed to do just to get enough food, everything was day to day. There was no, it was just a matter of going out and finding some odd jobs. I call it matando tigres in, in Venezuela, just doing whatever odd jobs you can to scrape together a little money or a little food. Um, and so I was always having that conversation with people. I was always saying to people, um, uh, you know, tell me about your personal economy. Tell me what is it like at home? And I would go to their homes and I would have them take me to the kitchen. And I would look in the kitchen and you know, I describe it in the book where often I would go into somebody's house and, you know, I would have a long conversation with them. And in the course of that, you know, we would go into the kitchen and I would ask them to open the cupboard and there was literally nothing in it. And um, that happened over and over again and nothing in the refrigerator. Um, the law, a big part of the book is the electrical blackouts in 2019, where there were these, you know, nationwide blackouts that in some cases lasted for days. And when the, you know, there was also lots of brownouts and these power fluctuations. So a lot of people had burned out refrigerators. Um, so, you know, there were a lot of refrigerators that had nothing in it. And then, they, you know, one of the things they didn't have in it was cold, uh, um, but there was no food to keep there anyway. Um, uh, 
So, but, you know, then there's always these contrasts because, uh, you know, I think that must happen in any country in crisis. There's always people that have money and people that don't. And so I would spend my days in places like Baitare in the slums of Caracas talking to people who, you know, were barely eating. And then I'd go back to the, what they call the east of Caracas, uh, where the, you know, middle class or upper middle class lives. And there the restaurants were full, the bars were full. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a, but it's not, I mean, it, it, it's a real shocking contrast to see, but I don't think it's that unusual. And then I, I describe another thing in the book where I would often drive on my one, one route that I used, I would often drive by a gym and it was a gym where on the second floor, um, it was all glass and you could see all the people doing their spinning classes up there. And you would think, well, how is it possible for people to be like burning extra calories when a couple of miles away, people are starving? And, you know, then I realized it's not the fault of the people who still have jobs, still can have a decent salary, still want to stay in shape. I mean, obviously, there's a tremendous amount of corruption in Venezuela. And to the degree that people are involved in that, um, they do have responsibility. But there was a lot of people still, even within in, in the crisis, that had held on to jobs. There were, you know, there was a certain amount of economic activity. And so there's just these horrible contrasts in a place like that that are that are hard to 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 really make sense of. So what what does Chavismo look like after Chavez, um, or how has it changed, and what comes after Maduro? Okay, well the uh, the key thing to understand, I think, about uh, Chavez and Chavismo is that you know the the facile um, take on Chavez is that he was a socialist because he called himself a socialist. But what I say about Chavez is that he wasn't a socialist; he was a populist. And um, Chavez essentially is. Uh, Chavez and Trump are, are very similar figures politically. Um, Chavez was a populist demagogue who came in as an outsider candidate, as a disruptor. Um, and he was one of the pioneers and precursors of this wave that we've seen around the world right now of uh, these figures who come in and um, use democracy to take power and then undermine democracy in order to, to, to stay in power. Um, and one of the ways they do that is through this populist mechanism of um, polarization and creating this us versus them, uh, the people versus the enemy, the people mentality, the people versus the, the corrupt and evil elites. Um, and so that's the, the essential uh, character uh, characteristic of Chavismo. Um, Chavez was also very lucky. Chavez, when Chavez is elected, the uh, or when Chavez takes office, the price of Venezuelan oil was less than $8 a barrel. And very quickly, it starts to go up until eventually it gets to almost $120 a barrel. Um, so the country filled up with money under Chavez. Um, so people say that Chavez had charisma, and I say that what Chavez had was oil over $100 a barrel. And that kind of money covers up all sorts of failings. Um, so when I got there, I was very fortunate because I got to Venezuela in 2012 um, when I started as the as the correspondent there. And so um, Chavez had come down with cancer in 2011. And then in 2012, he declares that he's cancer free and that he's now it's an election year. So he's not running for reelection. And oil was over $100 a barrel at that point. Um, and they were borrowing billions of dollars from the Chinese because they were juicing the economy, as many countries do during an election year. But this was extra on steroids because they wanted to get Chavez reelected. 
And um, so I saw Venezuela as this prosperous, buoyant uh, country. And I saw Chavez, you know, in, in his, what was both his sort of peak or prime and last gasp. And then the, he wins re-election and then uh, the next year he dies. Um, and then Maduro takes over. And there's essentially two crises that uh, uh, are that lead to the collapse of Venezuela. One is the political crisis, where which starts with the death of Chavez and the takeover of Maduro, who's much less skilled politically and less experienced. And then a year after Chavez dies, the price of oil starts to fall. And oil, of course, is the center of the Venezuelan economy. Um, and so that begins the economic crisis. And those two crises feed together and lead to this collapse. Um, so Chavismo after Chavez um, is both the same and different. I mean, you've lost that sort of charismatic uh, figure uh, that is essential to what we consider populism, but you still have all those mechanisms of populism in place and you still have the essential polarization that Chavez created and that Maduro maintains. Um, so, but the, what you don't have is you don't have the leader and you don't have the money. So the Chavista government or the Maduro government uh, has, is, has become much more repressive than Chavez was. Chavez had political prisoners, but a handful. Maduro has, you know, hundreds of political prisoners, um, much more uh, violent uh, crackdowns, both in the slums and, and of protests. Um, and much more heavy-handed manipulation of elections. So what, um, what keeps the opposition from banding together and um, coming, coming up with a, with a solution or a proposal, an alternative? I never quite understood the, um, the difference amongst the different groups. What, what is the current uh, state of the sure. opposition? I mean, you know, the opposition's problem in a lot of ways is the country's problem in that Venezuela is a country that has a history of caudillismo, of the caudillo, the, 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 the savior, which is what Bolivar was, which is what Chavez was, um, you know, this, the, the, the general on the white horse. Um, and <clears throat> the opposition is full of uh, men, for the most part, who want to be the next caudillo. Um, they might not express it that way, but it's certainly when you're watching it from the outside, that's what you see. Uh, the way um, it was described to me by uh, Chuo Torrialba, who's uh, Chuo is an activist uh, uh, in the opposition for a long time, and he's had radio shows and TV shows um, as well. And he was, uh, for a period of time, the head of the opposition party coalition. And he said that what you have in Venezuela is you have all these small parties that are not political parties in the way that we might think of them in the United States or perhaps previously thought of them in the United States. They're all parties that are organized around a single leader and his personal ambition. They essentially exist to promote the personal ambitions of the leader, and that ambition is to become president someday. And so you have all these fairly small parties, uh, for the most part, that are centered on these leaders. And they, they can't, if that's the, if the point of the party is to get a single person elected president, it's very hard for them to work together because in coalition, well, then who becomes the, the anointed one? So historically, the political parties, there's a tremendous amount of infighting both between the parties and between their leaders. And then uh, periodically they'll come together and then split up again. Um, when they do figure out how to work together, they have, um, 
had a lot of success. In 2015, um, as a coalition, they won a majority in the National Assembly, um, which was very significant. Um, Maduro had only become president a couple of years before that, but they really made a lot of mistakes and weren't able to capitalize on, on that success. Um, and then just last November, there was another election, which after a tremendous amount of uh, dispute internally, uh, a number of the parties decided to participate in the election and they won uh, more than a third of the mayorships around the country. They did really well in, uh, in terms of vote in most of the governorship races. Um, except they didn't win most of them because multiple parties ran candidates and they split the vote. Um, so uh, what's happened most recently is that the, the parties have disintegrated even further. There's been a tremendous, I mean, because you have uh, these sort of lead, the way these parties are created around a single leader, there isn't a lot of opportunity in those parties for new leadership to form. And so <clears throat> over time you get these internal tensions which then wind up splitting the, the parties. And that's what we've seen in the last several months um, increasingly. Now the government is extremely adept at taking advantage of that. So there are often, in many of the cases, the government is sort of in there meddling and manipulating and promoting one group over another or through the Supreme Court taking over parties and, and designating the, you know, a leadership of that party that is much more amenable to the government or pliable towards the government. Um, so unfortunately, it's, uh, it's this sort of herding cats chaos. Uh, and, um, you know, I think I said earlier, but if I didn't, you know, you often get the impression that they're more interested in fighting with each other than than fighting with the government. So as Guaido fizzled out, there were realistically or unrealistically at the beginning great hopes that he might represent something new, a new wave, but lately I haven't heard much about him. So what's going Guaido, on? Guaido was a bubble that lasted a very short period of time. Um, Guaido creates the appearance of unity, but it was really just papering over even greater disunity. Um, because Guaido declares himself president and, you know, in coordination with the U.S. and Colombia and then lots of other countries uh, also sort of um, jumped in and, and recognized him. Um, but it was done without any real coordination with the other political parties. It was done behind the back of the political parties. So when he declared himself president and and the US and all these other countries uh, recognized him, then the other political parties said, well, we'll go along for the ride. But the ride didn't last very long because there was never a plan. It was, unfortunately, there was never a strategy. It was, we'll do this and then something will happen and Maduro will go away. Um, there was a lot of magical thinking there, but uh, there was no real plan or strategy to get there. And there, whatever the little bit of a expectation that there was inside the Guaido group was that, you know, there would be, um, uh, that the military would respond and, and stage a coup against Maduro or that the people would rise up. And then in response to that, the military would, would get rid of Maduro or, you know, you, it's clear that in some cases there was a lot of hope that maybe, you know, the U.S. would intervene militarily, um, which was never in the cards. Um, so there was tremendous mistakes. Guaido declared himself president. A month later, 
they staged this, uh, what was essentially a stunt where they said they were going to bring humanitarian aid into the country through the border at Cucuta, the Colombian border. But there, once again, there was no plan there. They just brought the aid to Cucuta, and then they had no way to get it into Venezuela. So that what, what um, people said to me was that it was the early sign of the overpromising and the underdelivering. And then um, eventually you get to the this sort of so-called so coup that they staged on April 30th, 2019, which was what, just four months after the whole thing started or less. And um, there was not, there, once again, there was no plan there. It was just sort of this very lame attempt to get the military to, to do something, but without uh, any real assurances or preparation that it would make that happen. And after that, people sort of walked away. There was a tremendous amount of expectation and excitement in the country and energy and huge demonstrations in support of Guaido. But within four months, people sort of just shrugged and went off and were disappointed again. And also under tremendous pressure, um, people had, you know, they had to get put food on the table. Um, so today, Guaido um, is almost never mentioned in Venezuela outside of, you know, a small circle around him. I mean, if you're out sort of just talking to people in general, he's not a factor. He's much more important in Washington and Miami than he is in Caracas, um, which doesn't mean that he's, I mean, you know, he's been tremendously brave. He's stuck it out. Uh, he's been under tremendous amount of pressure. He's a young guy and he, you know, his hair's gone gray. Uh, he, um, he, you know, you have to credit his courage. Um, but uh, in, in, the, in pol the political sense, uh, you know, he, um, he's just now one factor among, among many uh, in this very splintered opposition. In, a, in our previous episode, Keep Minds from the U.S. Institute of Peace, use the expression democratic coexistence to, des to describe the fact that neither side is strong enough to resolve this impasse. So both sides need to learn how to coexist. In your opinion, how do you think the situation will evolve? You've got, as you mentioned, the opposition splintered, um, the government taking advantage of that situation, but when will they get to the table and, and what will that relation ship of power be like to, to try well, to Well, I think we have to, I mean, uh, I understand what Keith is saying, and I think that that's an important insight. Um, but I also think that we have to recognize that the, the government is much stronger than the opposition. The government is in power. I mean, one of the problems with the whole Guaido uh, episode is that they were pretending to be a government when they weren't a government. They had no power. They were on the outside. Uh, and Maduro still you know, no matter what they tried to call him, he, he was sitting in the presidential palace and he had control of the, the ports and the taxation system and the armed forces and the police. Um, so, you know, they've been able to um, continue in uh, a, anyway, I, I just think, I mean, there isn't, it's not like they're equal powers that can't, uh, you know, top one can't topple the other. There's the much more power on the government side. That said, um, uh, I had a conversation with Enrique Capriles last November when I was in Caracas, and uh, Capriles uh, ran for president twice uh, against Chavez in 2012, and then against Maduro in 2013. 
Um, and he has been one of the most kissed, consistent voices in favor of the electoral uh, uh, option in Venezuela. In other words, he, for the most part, has not participated in these calls to boycott elections, which have tended to undermine opposition uh, power rather than the opposite. Um, and what he said to me is he said, you know, as long as it's a zero sum game and and we and the opposition continues to make the case that we're going to come to power and we're going to throw them all out and they're all going to go to jail. And, you know, Maduro is under indictment in the U.S. And, um, you know, there's this uh, uh, crimes against humanity process against him and his government uh, internationally. Um, you know, as long as these people have this idea that they're, they, there's no way out for them, that there's no alternative, that it's existential. In other words, we're either in power or we're destroyed. He said that, you know, you can't, there's no way to make progress that way because people have their backs against the wall. And so the opposition needs to figure out a way to um, envision a future in which some form of Chavismo uh, uh, participates in the political process and they need in, to be able to communicate that to, to the Chavistas. Um, it can't just be this us, us or them uh, thing. And when you look at it, you know, I think that one of the things that happens in, in this populist scenario is that the, the populist side creates this us against them um, dynamic, and then the opposition falls into it and repeats it. Um, so they say, well, no, you know, it's not you against us, it's you, it's us against you, we're the us, you know. Um, so that's, uh, so I think that's what Keith is getting at. There has to be some political solution there where um, there's uh, both sides can conceive of a way where they have a political future in the country. In the meantime, um, in the region, what do Venezuela's neighbors think about all of this? How do they react? Uh, what is the relationship? Who are the main allies sure. or, or, um, or um, opponents? Well, um, you know, obviously one of the main characteristics of the whole crisis in Venezuela has been this outpouring of refugees. Uh, the, more than 6 million refugees at this point, I believe, have left Venezuela, which is about 20% of the pre-crisis population, which is extraordinary. Um, and they have primarily gone to other Latin American countries. There's, I forget the exact number, but maybe a million and a half, greater than a million and a half in Colombia right now, which is... And, and, and the, the arrival of so many refugees in all these countries has really stressed those countries which were already under stress and then the pandemic comes along and it's even worse. I mean, these countries didn't have the social services for their own population and then, and then they're expected to take in, you know, in many cases, hundreds of thousands of, of, of impoverished, uh, destitute refugees. Um, so that's been a tremendous stress on the region as a whole. And now you see a lot of Venezuelans coming uh, to the southern border in the U.S. as well. Um, and uh, so, you know, then you have other sort of political dynamics in play. I mean, you have the, the, the Duque as president of Colombia and historically lots of political tensions between the you know, so-called leftist government in Venezuela and the rightist government in, in, in Colombia, whether it was Uribe before or ultimately now Duque. 
Um, and, you know, there's a lot of what happens, for instance, if Petro wins in, in Colombia. Um, I mean, we'll see what the results of the election there are. Um, uh, and then there's been a sort of shifting dynamic around the, the region where you Chavez had, uh, you know, these Alba countries. There was when Chavez was president, there was, uh, you know, this number of leftist leaders elected around the region. You had Evo Morales in Bolivia, you had Correa in, in, in Ecuador, you had Lula in, in Brazil. And, and, um, and there was a certain amount of support there. And then you had a shift where a lot of these countries uh, went the other direction. And, you know, there was talk about, oh, it's shifting to the right. And then more recently, you've had like when Castillo was elected in, in, in Peru, oh, and then Boric in Chile, oh, now it's shifting to the left. I don't see it that way. I just think it's this sort of very typical alternation where, you know, people have become absolutely sick of their political leaders and they just, you know, one side comes in and, they, you know, they can't solve the problems. They kick him out. They put the other side in. But so now we're in this sort of strange period where you've got Boric in Chile, uh, you've got uh, uh, the per Peronistas back in, in power in, in Argentina. There's a good chance that Lula wins in Brazil. Um, you know, so it's this political dynamic that's become very fluid. You have AMLO in, in Mexico, but it's not clear that, uh, you know, what, how that affects any sort of outcome in Venezuela. I mean, you would hope that even if you get more leftist leadership in these countries, they would still recognize the need to come up with some sort of solution for the crisis in Venezuela because it taxes their countries too. Meanwhile, um, back in the States, um, how important, what degree of priority does the Venezuelan case have in uh, inside the Beltway in Washington? What does Wall Street think of this? Um, the expatriate community, um, the Latin community, um, is it is it a hot topic or it's drifted into um, sort of you know back burner um, case? Well, it depends where you are. Um, essentially, Venezuela has become a new Cuba, which means that Venezuela policy is viewed through a single lens, which is Florida politics. And so, under Trump, the White House didn't have a Venezuela foreign policy; it had a Florida election strategy that utilize Venezuela or weaponize Venezuela. And, you know, Trump comes in in 2016, no, 2017, and he immediately starts looking ahead to the next presidential election in 2020, and he identifies Florida as a key state because of its, the number of electoral votes there. Um, and he recognizes that, you know, the important Hispanic voting block there can be energized by this issue of, you know, socialism and, and Venezuela. And um, so Venezuela, uh, so Trump starts to talk really tough and all this bluster, you know, all the options are on the table, the military option and starts to pretend like he wants to invade Venezuela. And then he starts hitting them with all these sanctions. Um, but the goal wasn't really to improve conditions in Venezuela, um, and conditions only got worse in Venezuela. Um, but as a political strategy, it was very successful because the Republicans won the midterms in Florida, and then Trump wins the 2020 election in Florida by a much bigger margin than, than he had four years earlier. Um, so, uh, 
it's extremely uh, politicized. And then Biden comes in and he sort of inherits what's essentially a trap from Trump, where um, because it's because the Democrats have been beaten so badly in Florida, um, anything that he does that could be characterized as going soft on Maduro, any sort of change to this sanctions regime um, could have a political cost. And so you see Biden come in and he really doesn't, I mean, he's got a million problems that are on his list of priorities above Venezuela to begin with. But um, he also, he and his people don't really see any way to win anything by dealing with Venezuela because it's so toxic politically. And so it, they sort of just let it bide. And then, of course, now things change because you have the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ban on Russian oil imports, while at the same time we have a ban on Venezuelan oil imports. Um, and so they send this group of people to Caracas to talk to Maduro uh, about a number of things, but one of them is the possibility of uh, the U.S. resuming oil imports, um, which immediately receives a political backlash from Rubio and Menendez and, and others. Um, and that's still sort of in limbo, um, so. So were you, uh, you were last in Venezuela last year, so you got to see the country under COVID and what did it look like? Well, you know, COVID, uh, I mean, the Venezuela was lucky at the very beginning of COVID because it was extremely isolated. There were almost no flights into Venezuela. Uh, at the time that COVID started. So um, at the beginning, it seemed like they had gotten lucky, but of course COVID turned out to be a marathon rather than a sprint. Um, so they have, they very early on instituted uh, sort of these, um, you know, stay at home orders and what people call lockdowns. Um, they used their connections to the Chinese to get uh, tests when other people were still trying to get their hands on them. They got a lot of, uh, Russian vaccines. Um, and uh, so they have, you know, uh, I mean, one of the, the characteristics there is because it's an authoritarian government and a repressive government, what they, one of the things they've done is as much as they've tried to uh, control the virus, they've tried to control the information. So, um, you know, they haven't, you can't really trust the, for a long time, you weren't able to trust the economic information the government put out. They concealed most of it. Um, and so it's hard to believe the numbers that you see for Venezuela. I mean, they're so much lower than uh, the neighboring countries uh, in terms of per capita illnesses and, and deaths. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, what they have, what they ended up with there was this sort of alternating system of one week of uh, stay at home and one week of, uh, of going out, um, which by, by the last November when I was there, um, there wasn't much of that in place anymore. There were some public mask orders. People tended to wear their masks when they were out in public. Um, but you know, like I think people everywhere else, there's this just this level of exhaustion. So at the end, having written the book and um, you continue to, to follow the situation, is there is there a moral of the story? Is there a, a, a relevance of the Venezuelan case for the rest of the world or, or, or specific regions of the world? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think 
Venezuela is very much a cautionary tale for the United States and for other countries because Venezuela is much further down the road that the United States started going down, certainly before Trump, but definitively with Trump in the sense of this, uh, you know, we can look at them and they're very different countries economically. The U.S. is much more complex, much larger. Uh, there's many differences. Um, However, we can look at them and see what happens uh, to a deeply polarized society that has a government that exists uh, and, and whose permanence uh, relies on maintaining that uh, polarization. And it's not a pretty picture. Um, and it's also hard looking at them to figure out how you get out of that, uh, once you're in that bind, uh, how you get out of it. Um, but, you know, Trump didn't uh, invent uh, a lot of these uh, political tactics that he used, but he did show that they could still uh, function and be successful in the 21st century. Um, he was uh, somewhat of a pioneer in terms of his use of the media, uh, his, you know, constant use of television and also of social media. Um, so he was ahead of some others in that. Um, but uh, yeah, it's very, you know, you look at Venezuela, the, con the economy has finally started to grow again. So after eight years of catastrophic contraction, there is a small, I wouldn't call it a recovery, but a small, you know, it's a return to growth. And when you're growing from a very low uh, level, the, it, can, it can appear to be like a big uh, improvement, but they have a very long way to go to get back anywhere close to where they used to be. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but we won't let you leave until um, you give us your recommendation of a special place or two in the region um, during your your stay there. What what do you have for us? In terms mm, of there's that? so many. Um, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, I used to love to go to the baseball games. Venezuela, for all of the you know, the history of Chavismo and the anti-imperialism, uh, it's still a very U.S.-oriented country. The, the U.S. has been there uh, for a long time in the sense of relations between the countries, the oil industry, um, and Venezuela, you know, starting a long time ago with the oil workers became a baseball-loving country. So the the second highest number of foreign-born baseball players are Venezuelan in the major leagues. So there's a, they have a winter league there and they often get American, well, they used to get American players. Now with the crisis, they don't. But I used to very much love to go to the university stadium in Caracas and uh, watch the, the, the baseball games. So hopefully, and that still happens. It's much reduced as everything else is, but hopefully as things recover, hopefully they will continue to. Um, that will be another thing that, that recovers. Great. Well, well, thank you, Willie. Um, this has been a masterclass on the current situation in Venezuela. Once again, William's book, Things Are Never So Bad They Can't Get Worse, Inside the Collapse of Venezuela, St. Martin's Press, 2022. Thank you, Bill. Come back again soon. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate it. Thanks. That's all for today. Thank you for listening and supporting EconoPolitics. Mm -hmm. We wish to thank Dominic Wachter for our new artwork and Yusef Negm for the original music. We'll be back again in the fall with season five and another great lineup of colleagues and specialists discussing Latin America. 
In the meantime, please spread the word and let us know what you think. From all of us here at EconoPolitics, stay safe, stay well, y hasta pronto. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time for another episode of EconoPolitics.